The following podcast is work safe. PS3. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our breakout bonus level, PS3 edition, or PlayStation edition. We may also talk about PSP from time to time, but mostly that'll be in, a, in the portable gaming section. But if it, if it relates to somehow controlling it or DLC that interacts with the PlayStation 3 or something to do with the PlayStation, so we'll play it by ear. But joining me, of course, is our PS3 go-to person, 2PyR. 2PyR, welcome to your first ever bonus level breakout. Greetings from the left coast. I want to just start off here. There's a couple things that I think were surprising to me, and that was the plethora of releases in the dynamic theme area of the PlayStation Store. We went from having about three dynamic themes to having a dynamic theme for just about every single game that's ever come out for the PlayStation 3. So this was quite a boon, and I'm happy about this because... I don't know about you, but I enjoy the dynamic themes. The problem is, is that since I bought the Sackboy one, that's been the best dynamic theme ever, and it makes me want other themes, but nothing's really stacked up and lived up to that. Let me just run through what was dumped into the PlayStation Store. Mega Man 10 featuring an 8-bit HD foot race against a parallax-scrolling cityscape only at night, which is kind of odd. I thought they would have a night version and a day version. And you see Mega Man racing against all his enemies, even that little guy that is under the construction helmet. He's even in there. And a different person at random wins each time. We also got a new Mega Man where he's jumping up clouds, and sometimes it's other characters from Mega Man, like the fellow with the shield. Uh, he jumps up clouds as well. But that's about it. He jumps up clouds, and then sometimes he falls off, and there's there's villains up there. We also got a Ratchet and Clank, which is actually a very nice-looking theme. It's just that right now, I don't know how I feel about Ratchet and Clank, and until I purchase a new... I think we're going to hear about that today, though, right? Absolutely. I've uh, actually that's what I've been playing most for about the last week and a half. So I've I've got all kinds of things to say about that one. Fantastic. So maybe when I get a hold of that game, I might uh, want to buy this dynamic theme. We also got a Lord of the Rings, which is sort of like watching one of these motion paintings you might see at your granny's house. I thought I got completely ripped off until I noticed that maybe there's four or five different backdrops that happen. But what I mean by these motion paintings, it'll be like the waterfall has sparkles on the water. Or there's a horde of evil Ewoks. I don't know what happens in Lord of the Rings. These guys, they're an army and maybe they move back and forth a little bit and that's about it. So it's sort of like a a painting with some flicker art going on in some parts of the painting. We also get a Wipeout. Uh, I haven't picked that one up yet, but I'm I'm a big fan of Wipeout. I think I'm, you know, one of the five people that, that still enjoy this franchise. And the swimsuit. Now we have a swimsuit one as well. Now, Tupire, tell me, please, what is the fixation and and how do these even get into our theme areas? Only in a Sony store do we see these releases of pinup girls in Santa Claus suits, anime girls and with their things flopping out all around the place. What's going on here? Uh, a couple of theories for that one. The first is the fact that the PlayStation 3, you know, even after the price drop, is still the most expensive console out there of the current generation. 
historically people that can spend that kind of money for consoles up front usually are older, usually more affluent, usually are more educated. As a result, the PlayStation 3 is really the the only console that has always kind of exclusively... I don't want to say it's that it's exclusively adults only because obviously there's, you know, E-rated games and, you know, E10 and everything. People are buying it as a family entertainment unit, so you can't make it just targeted at, you know, 35-year-old men with disposable income. Right. But at the end of the day, 35-year-old men with disposable income are the ones that are going to spend money on the little things that just, you know, tweak the system rather than providing functionality or being a playable game in their own right. And uh, you know, the casual gaming market is a different segment than the dynamic theme market, I think. I see. Uh, I think also, to some extent, the reason we see this at Sony per se is because at the end of the day, there's always been that stereotype of otaku culture sort of being, I hesitate to use the word misogynistic, but they (laughs) tend to see women more as objects than as equals. And whether or not there's any truth to that stereotype, that stereotype tends to play heavily in the way things are marketed. I just can't see how this goes all the way up the chain of Sony and they put their stamp of approval on it. But, you know, hey, whatever. I mean, I don't mind. It's just that I don't think there's really a balance there. I don't I don't see any half-naked men uh, dynamic themes, you know, with, with uh, guys walking down with their butt crack sticking out or something. We also got Flower, which is a good one. Trash Panic. I mean, how? what a niche are you going to be appealing to here to have a dynamic theme of a very niche trash panic user base that's out there? Heavy Rain has a couple themes. Uh, must have dynamics, in my opinion. Like I mentioned, Little Big Planet. This is a very, very nice dynamic thing, which just has Sackboy running around a, a yarn world or or cloth world, if you will. And there's two versions of this, a lighter one and a darker one, depending on the, the time of day. And it does everything that a dynamic theme should do. It looks great. It's pleasing on the eye and doesn't get in the way. And everything that moves across it in your cross-browser looks nice. There's also a Pixel Junk Monsters 3D, which is kind of neat. There's a few Star Treks, which are perfect as well. Not a lot going on, and you get to see the Star Trek craft old and new i believe there's also an africa theme the zebra edition so it brings every all the realism that that niche title africa or as uh I, when i bought it for chiz from japan it was called hakuna matara uh and uh, so it has the zebras from that and, and they look great as well but that's about it dynamic theme big boon in the dynamic theme massive release section of your playstation store and i think they rock you two or three bucks but speaking of the cross-browser, before we get into the real games and the meat of this story, I figure I get my crap out of the way first, uh, the little little things that I pick up on. We have a really big problem. The reason I can't recommend the Mega Man themes, although I love them, and they're classic 8-bit filling a full HD, which is really neat just to see that. And I love the simplicity of the Mega Man themes. But... Those themes, when I use my cross-browser, I blow my earballs off <laughs> because there's there's no consistent volumes for anything that's going on in your cross-browser. The Sackboy theme, the noises and the sounds that occur when you move around in a cross-browsers are quite low in comparison to when you launch a game and play the game, so they're perfect. But these 8-bit themes are compressed and pushed all the way up to the very threshold of zero and they just are 
incredibly annoying, you know, because they're like bleeps and bloops. But imagine bleeps and bloops with your stereo turned all the way up to 10. It's, it's not very pleasant. And I don't know if you ever noticed this 2PyR, but if you go down through all your DLC in your cross browser, and as you go over each game, each game is at a different volume. I've absolutely noticed that. And, you know, the problem you're talking about isn't even limited just to dynamic themes. The static theme for Batman Arkham Asylum and the static theme for Siren Blood Curse uh, had exactly the same problem. Every time you would put the, the Batman theme on and just move back and forth in your cross browser, you get the, the sound of him readying his grappling cable, which mm -hmm. is an awesome sound. But you get it at like, you know, five or six decibels higher than anything else your PlayStation is doing. And yes. it just it does something that I think a user interface should never do, which is that it calls attention away from what the user is doing and, and causes them to focus instead on the interface itself. Yeah. A really well done interface is something that you never notice, something that is so seamless and so transparent that it almost becomes invisible to what you're actually trying to accomplish with the device. And the interfaces that have the sounds cranked all the way up like that just totally break that rule. Yeah. Yeah, I think Sony really needs to put a hard limit on all the attract sounds of the games that you have in your cross browser and all the themes that you use dynamic or, or otherwise. I think there needs to really be a limit when you're in that cross browser area because, you know, I, I, I want to play at night sometimes and other people might be sleeping around me and I have the volume down pretty low. All of a sudden I go over, I don't know, Street Fighter or something and it's like... A big marching band walking through my living room. It's all bad. And you at least, you know, live in your own space away. <laughs> you know, you're not, you're not right up butting up against neighbors. Sure. You know, it's basically just you and Chiz. I'm sitting in a duplex where there's a nine-month-old baby just on the other side of the wall where the television is located. If I'm playing after about 8 p.m., it's vital that I don't have random sounds blasting out. Yes, yes. All right, pal. So let's get into the meat of, the, meat of this uh, little spin, our breakout show here, and uh, hit me with what you got. All righty. Uh, the two games that I've really been playing heavily uh, the last couple of weeks are uh, Ratchet & Clank, Future, A Crack in Time, and Heavy Rain. Both of them, I think, do very interesting and noteworthy things uh, from a narrative standpoint, and I think they're both worth talking about for similar reasons, even though they're getting at those similar reasons in very different ways. Since you mentioned about being on the fence about Ratchet and Clank, let's start there. Okay. Ratchet and Clank, a crack in time, takes place fairly immediately after the uh, Quest for Booty minigame that was released on the PSN last summer. Yeah, I, I played uh, all the way through that. Mm -hmm. And the, they do the opening sequence very well. In It's sort of a, an interview with Captain Quark that sums up the important points of the, the previous two games. The really clever thing they do about that is they have the uh, this interview section playing while the uh, game is doing all of its hard drive install in the background. Uh, so if you're willing to you know just accept that the cutscene is part of the game from the user experience, it's a purely seamless transition. You just pop the disc in and the game starts playing, even if you have to do an installation. Okay, uh, which is a really nice touch, and I think that's something that other games could do well to learn from the example of. You know, you, you, you get frustrated if you're sitting there just staring at a thermometer and waiting for it to fill so you can start playing the game. Or, you know, God forbid, the 
first time I put Grand Theft Auto 4 in, the installation for that game is about 10 minutes and there's nothing happening on the screen. I I seriously was afraid, you know, here's my PlayStation 3 that I just spent $400 on. It's been plugged in for less than a week and I've already blown it out. How is this possible? Yeah, it's like I, I mentioned when I first started talking about the PS3. You really have to plan in advance to have a game night. Make sure if you just bought a game, put it in, uh, you know, at the beginning of the day and go about your business. And then at the end of the day, you can sit down and play it. Um, And it doesn't take that long, but you you really have to plan in advance. If you really want to crack open a brand new game, stick it in. uh, Sometimes you're going to be there for a little while. But, you know, this this harkens back to Namco, I think, was one of the first people to hide their loading screens. Back uh, on the Ridge Racer series, you could play Galaga or, um, you know, one of those uh, shooters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, would, you would play that. It, it might have even been Galaga. I'm not sure. But you used to play a game while you were waiting for the, the loading to occur. And, of course, the famous example of that is the, uh, the original Resident Evil game where the whole animation of the door opening was just to cover the fact that it was loading the next room that you were about to walk into off the disc. True, true. Back to the matter at hand. So Ratchet and Clank picks up right where Quest for Booty leaves off with Ratchet and Quark embarking on a quest to locate and rescue Clank. We find out what happened to him after the Zonies got him. We find out where the plot is going. And we find out a little bit more about a structure called the Great Clock, uh, which without giving anything away is a structure that was created a very, very long time ago that is what keeps the temporal rifts uh, that appear in the time stream from destroying the universe. And there's actually a fairly neat mechanic with that in that there are points in the game where you explore planets and see rifts in time that are creating anomalies on those planets. Uh, Later in the game, you are in the great clock repairing those rifts in time. And then if you go back and revisit those levels so that you can pick up the last little, you know, gold bolt or, you know, Rhino five plan or whatever, the rifts have actually gone away and that section of the landscape is just behaving normally. It's not really something that's critical to, to gameplay, but it's a very neat touch that shows a really a lot of depth of thought went into the design of the thing. The thing that really interested me about this one, you know, I'd mentioned at the top that I was interested in what these games are doing from a narrative standpoint. The Ratchet and Clank future games have a through line in a way that previous entries in the series didn't. Obviously, the games are narrative and structure, and they're all and they're sequential. You know, the events of one influence the plot of the second, and so on. But in the PS2 Ratchet and Clank games, you didn't really have to have played the previous game to understand what was going on in this one. These three games, you know, the two disc-based games and the and the episodic, really tell one complete story between them. The story is getting more mature. I think, than the story of the previous uh, Ratchet and Clank games ever did. The theme in this one is very much about relationships, very much about loneliness, very much about determining what other people mean to you and, you know, what family actually means and what friendship actually means. And despite the fact that we're dealing with an anthropomorphic character in Ratchet and a robot in Clank, uh, which are easily dismissible because they're so very clearly not human, the story of the relationship between the two of them is absolutely at the core of everything that happens in this game. And they manage to tell that story in a way that makes the characters very compelling and actually makes you care about what's happening in the plot as well as what's happening in the gameplay. It's something that doesn't happen in a lot of games these days. And to, to have something that was originally 
designed more with a child audience in mind. You know, a game that was designed to be playable by young players, but also enjoyable by somewhat older players. To get storytelling of that depth is really a very unique and impressive thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it might even serve as a springboard for questions between children and their parents about, you know, what happens if this person who's such a really good friend of mine now goes away? What happens when I can't play with this person anymore, when I can't see this person anymore? To get that degree of emotion out of purely animated figures is, I think, really impressive. (laughs) And I think uh, Insomniac deserves a lot of credit for pulling that off. Do you think that it's more compelling this time because the more human-like person was captured? Whereas in the last episode, the booty thing, I mean, Mm -hmm. I really didn't care about my robot friend. Well, the, the the characters, the pirate characters were never meant really to be deep characters, I don't think. The pirates were developed basically as a foil in the first Ratchet & Clank Future game, and they basically serve uh, as little more than a link between the two um, as far as a plot device is concerned. Uh, you don't even really see them as characters in Crack in Time. You know, there's radio stations as you're flying around in your ship. Mm-hmm, right. And the voices of the pirates come on doing funny ads for, you know, the pirate theme park and for a, a fund that they've set up to help uh, help you to to allow you to help pirates that have been separated from their bodies, you know, because <laughs> right. ratchet and stuff like that. Sure. Th- they were always just there for comic relief. I don't think you were really meant to feel for them very deeply. But, you know, Ratchet and Clank, I mean, obviously the series is, is named after those two. You know, they're, they're very much the marquee characters. And really, they're marquee characters for the PlayStation as a product in a lot of ways. Sure. I wouldn't go so far as to call them, you know, the Mario and Luigi of, of the PlayStation. Right. But I think in a lot of ways, they fill a similar role. You know, uh, Ratchet and Clank have shown up in big head racing games. Mm-hmm. It's conceivable that if you were going to make games based on franchise characters, the way Nintendo does, uh, Ratchet and Clank would, would definitely be two that you would choose. Jack and Daxter, by comparison, people that are PlayStation fanboys from a long time back will obviously remember those names, but once their story was done, that was pretty much the end of it. I had said when I talked about the last Ratchet and Clank that I downloaded, I had said that, well, it was it was sort of like a Mario world, except without the control being there. You know, it's, 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 still, it's still lacking a little bit in control. But the backgrounds are amazing. I, I, I'm not so sure that it's, it's necessarily all in the control as well. There's, there's some collision detection and things like that are a little off. But how's the gameplay in this one? Good? or The gameplay in this one is pretty fantastic. Okay. The Ratchet and Clank series has always been a little bit less about finesse with the controls than most other 3D platform games. Mm-hmm. Uh, the focus of the series has always been having a ridiculous arsenal of guns, some of which are utterly devastating, others of which are just silly and whimsical, and upgrading them by just shooting them and shooting them and shooting them instead of by buying parts for them like another in basically every other game that exists. Right. That tradition very much continues in this game. One thing that I noticed is that there is a bit more of an emphasis on environmental puzzles in this game than in previous entries. Less in the level design, more in the fact that in addition to the main levels that you have to go through in order to complete the storyline, there are also little moons that are, uh, you know, it's basically the the idea that was cribbed from uh, Super Mario Galaxy. Uh, It's just a little sphere and, you know, you're disproportionately large on the sphere and you walk around it and it sort of turns under you and you either have to shoot a bunch of enemies or you have have to navigate an obstacle course to get to a specific point. 
These are a lot more puzzle-based, whereas the primary levels are more action-based. This does represent a slight departure for the series. I mean, you're still doing some environmental puzzles in the main levels, but because the moons exist, that's been toned down a little bit, which actually in some ways is a boon to people that prefer a straight-up action game. Because for the most part, the moons are pretty ignorable. You will definitely be at a disadvantage to ignore them because that's where a lot of the uh, power-ups are located. So skipping them increases the challenge factor a little bit because the the game assumes, the the difficulty of the game ramps up assuming that you're also upgrading your own capabilities. And so if you uh, bypass those power-ups, you're going to be a little bit behind the curve. But a skilled action player isn't going to find that to be incredibly challenging, especially since the game is much more generous with money than previous entries in the series. On the PlayStation 2, it was very frequent to find yourself having to go back and just start destroying everything possible in the environment so that you could get every last little bolt so that you could afford mm-hmm. the next gun before you went on to the next level. In this game, after about the second moon, I have not been concerned about money in the slightest. I see. All right, very good. Well, now we heard what Kyle Von Kubik had to say about Rain, and he, and he uh, reiterated some other sentiment about it on the last episode of We Talk Games. I'm interested in finding out how it is at all similar to Ratchet & Clank. Well, remember that I said at the top that they're both coming to the same place. They're just coming about it in very different ways. Sure. The similarity that I see is less in terms of the gameplay, because from a stylistic standpoint, uh, both in terms of the environment, in terms of the design, and in terms of the gameplay... The games could not be more different. Sure. But I think both of them have placed such an incredible emphasis on narrative and on telling stories and on creating compelling characters that they're sort of spiritual cousins, even if they don't have a whole lot in common. Gotcha. The first thing that I noticed about Heavy Rain is that it is it has a very non-American sensibility. Mm. That's a very intangible thing to state. And it's very difficult to really put into words exactly what I mean by that. You kind of just either get it or you don't, which as an essayist, it's something that I hesitate to say. But there's so many little tangible things about the way the cameras are angled, about the fact that the game doesn't shy away from nudity, but neither is it gratuitous with it. Mm-hmm. In the fact that the interaction between the characters is tantamount to over everything. I don't think that this is a game that could have been designed by an American company. Well, you know, there's there's cultural differences. There's no doubt about that. We have stigmas in the States that don't exist overseas and vice versa. So a lot of uh, upbringing, a lot of cultural effects will bleed over into our video games. No doubt about that. Definitely. Uh, so as Kyle mentioned, Heavy Rain is in many ways sort of the successor to the graphical adventure games that were a very strong genre in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have criticized Heavy Rain for being nothing but a collection of quick time events. And that characterization is in some ways accurate, but I think it kind of misses the point. It's accurate in terms of the fact that there's very little in terms of consistent use of the controls on the controller. The left stick always determines movement, and the R2 button always starts or stops walking. Beyond that, every control uh, serves a different function depending on what, which character you're playing, what they're doing, where you are in the level even. And if you did not have the on-screen guides telling you to do this action or do that action, you would never be able to control what was going on. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's a far cry from Don Bluth animated full-motion video games of the past. 
Very much so. But at the same time, this game does something that very few other games manage to pull off. And even when I've seen it done, it's never done it, been done as elegantly, uh, which is that it tries very much to use the controls to emphasize the action that's going on on the screen. It's a lot of little things that you don't pick up on until you've played the game for a couple of hours and, and really have the experience soaked in. There's things like the motions that you have to make with the right stick very closely approximate either uh, you know lifting a glass to your lips or the motion that your hand would make when you're opening a door or when you're turning the, the keys in your car, engaging the, the, the clutch, things like this. Mm-hmm. I see. And there are other little consistencies like the fact that when you're in combat, your attacks are almost always executed with the trigger buttons and your blocks are almost always executed with the face buttons. The only difference being that, you know, and it's similar to a, to a, to a Bluth animated game, you have, to, uh, you have to block at certain times and you have to attack at other certain times, and all of that's dictated by the animation. You're not directly in control of what's happening. Mm-hmm. The difference is, in a Don Bluth animated game, because of the limitations of the way they were doing the animation, there was basically one primary animation track that you wanted to, con- and if you played smoothly, that track would continue. If you made a mistake, it would abruptly halt and you would get a pre-rendered death sequence that might or might not really fit in with what you've just been watching. Sure. Uh, Because this game is all done in 3D animation, the animation can instantly be adapted to reflect whether or not the player has entered the input correctly. Mm -hmm. Because of that, you wind up with a lot of situations where two people that played the same scene will get totally different experiences of playing that scene because they've really put a lot of thought into the branching and they've really put a lot of thought into making it seamless. The best example I can think of off the top of my head, toward the end of the, fir- of the first act, if you were to follow a standard three-act script structure like you would in a movie, toward the end of the first act, there's a sequence where the private investigator that you're controlling is interviewing the owner of a mini-mart. And while you're in the back of the store, a man with a gun comes in and tries to hold the guy up. Well, at this point, you can either charge blindly forward, in which case you'll get shot. You can try to sneak up behind the guy, and while you're doing so, walk through the liquor aisle. While you're there, you can try to grab a bottle. If you manage to grab it stealthily, you can whack him on the head with it and end the encounter. If you drop it and are clumsy, he swings the gun around at you, and now you have to walk out into the open and try to talk the guy down. The end of the sequence is basically the same, regardless of which of the paths you take to get there. But because the animation flows completely fluidly based on player input, unless you had already played the game through several times and knew what the branch path was and knew the iterations that were possible, it's something that would be totally transparent to you, Mm -hmm. which is really something that adventure games have always kind of had a problem with in the past. This is really, I think, the first example I've seen of something where it is completely that fluid. There's one other major departure from previous adventure games in that one of the hallmarks of adventure games of the past is the ability to arbitrarily save at any point. So whenever you've got a major decision coming up that you know is going to influence the gameplay, you just create a save and try it. Try method A, and if method A works, then great, you go on. And if method A doesn't work, then you just reload your save and try method B. In this game, there is no save command. It obviously automatically saves your progress as you go on, but it does so in a way that prevents you from going back and altering the course of the story. So if you decide that you want to try a scene a different way, you have to start over from the beginning. This is, from a gameplay standpoint, a little problematic because it might put some people off to know that they have to play through the first five hours just to change something they did in hour six. Sure. 
But from a storytelling standpoint, it really enforces a gravitas to the narrative structure that makes it more like a movie than like a game, which right. I think is a very interesting choice on their part as a result of that. Now, there is one tiny flaw with this system, which is I found a bug because of the fact that the, the actions that you take with the controls can mean different things depending on where you are physically located in the level. There was one scene uh, where I was playing as the FBI agent where I went to uh, lift a drape that had been placed over a body and the game couldn't quite detect which zone I was in. And so instead it tried to ha- have me exit the scene of the crime. And obviously I couldn't do that. And the game figured it out and put me back where I was supposed to be and let me keep going. But then when I went to actually exit the crime scene, it wouldn't let me out because it thought that that option had already been executed. So I was left with literally no choice but to start over. Now, fortunately, this was only about, you know, an hour and a half into the game, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But if that had happened at about hour 15, that probably wouldn't have been a deal breaker. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I heard about little bugs here and there. But I also do want to spend a little bit of a focus on what has actually kind of surprised me as not being controversial. Uh, which is the approach that the game takes to nudity. Okay. Most of the video games in history of, well, video games, if they use nudity at all, they do so in a way that is pretty ornamental. It's almost always a naked woman. She's almost always only topless wearing a G-string. And she's almost always displayed in such a way that is not really intrinsic to either the story or to the gameplay. Mm-hmm. On the PS3, the examples that leap straight to mind are the Conan game, where you would have to save slave girls. And when you save the slave girl, you would discover that she was topless and the camera would zoom in on her for a second. And then you would just go on with the level. And if you went back to where you had rescued her, rescued her she would actually just be gone. No explanation, no storyline, just vanished into thin air. Yeah. Uh, the other one being Godfather 2, where, you know, because you were a criminal overlord, you ha- control various illegal operations. One of them is a house of prostitution. When you go into the house of prostitution, all the women are wandering around topless, and they literally serve no purpose in the game. Mm-hmm. If you try to interact with them, there's just a little bit of flirtation, and then the conversation tree ends. You can't touch them. You can't fight them. You can't shoot them. You can't get them to trigger quests. You can't get them to trigger story branches. They literally serve no function. They're just there as atmosphere. That kind of thing is pretty indicative of how sexuality has been approached in video games all throughout history. Is is that in God of War 3? Because I haven't played that one yet. I know it's very it much too. in God of War 3. Okay. Um, each of the God of War games does have a sex scene. Sure. Uh, each of the sex scenes does feature a woman who's lounging around topless. Or two. Is, or two, that's true. Yes. A, a woman or two who's just lounging around topless. And then when you engage the sex game, the camera just coyly shifts off to one <laughs> side. And you hear the sounds that the people are making as you frantically follow the on-screen QuickTime event. But otherwise, you know, at the, the first time you do it, you get a bunch of red experience herbs. And then after that, it's literally nothing more than a distraction. Right. The big exception to that is God of War 3, where you were having sex with Aphrodite is actually what unlocks the portal to Hephaestus. But you can actually say, uh, no, I'd rather not have sex with you. And she says, oh, well, then be gone from my sight and opens the door anyway. I see. So, again, it serves no function in the story. It's just there for eye candy. What about romance? Why don't you give him a box of chocolates first and then... That is exactly what makes Heavy Rain as unique as it is. Hmm. The nudity comes into play in one of two scenarios. Either because the main character is taking a shower 
And when this happens, the camera is not used exploitatively. It just sort of presents a matter of fact happening of life. You know, people have to take showers. People have to clean off the grime from the day. Mm -hmm. And when the characters on screen take the shower, the camera just sort of hovers and you can see what they're doing. And then the camera just then they put their clothes back on and life goes on. You know, it's it's not there for titillation. It's just there to to help enhance the the ambiance and the atmosphere because it's really what this game is all about. It's it's all about creating atmosphere and creating believable characters and happenings in that atmosphere. Yeah. The other time it happens is when two of the protagonists decide that well, in fact, they do love each other. And it's a fairly significant development for the characters, and I can say this much without spoilers, one of the characters in question loses his family very early in the game. And so it it very much represents uh, an important point of emotional growth for him. The other character has an emptiness in her life and finds that the protagonist fills that emptiness for her. So when the sex happens, it happens because of a very natural and reasonable progression in the stories of the characters rather than a la God of War just sort of being thrown in to give the grown-up fanboy something to drool over. Sure. That too, I think, is something that we just haven't seen in games that were developed in America. And I am interested in this both in terms of what else can be done by treating sexuality as just a part of life as a storytelling device. And the other thing I'm kind of curious about is why are American game developers so immature in their treatment of the, of the subject? Mm-hmm. Why are they so afraid of using it as anything other than a titillation factor? Hot coffee. Exactly. Well, what about The Sims? Now, does, I, I, I'm not a big Sim player, but I've heard about it. I, does this, is The Sims just about trying to score two, I guess? Well, the thing about The Sims is, while EA did allow, well, I, I guess I should really say Will Wright. EA was just the publisher. While Will Wright did build access to sexuality into the development of the game, it sort of danced around uh, whenever one of the characters in the game is naked because they're taking a shower or because they're in bed or they're changing clothes or whatever. Uh, you get sort of a, uh, a a pixelation, you know, like oh, right. uh, the vanity when, when screens. Looking, exactly. Like, when, you know, when you put something on TV, you get that same sort of pixelated looks. So you can't actually see anything. There are various third-party hacks that people have come up with to remove the pixelation. <laughs> when they do so, they discover that the skins are decorated basically like Barbie dolls, Uh, not anatomically correct in any way, shape, or form. And even though sexuality is present in the game, it's done so in a very PG-rated way. Mm -hmm. First of all, characters can only interact sexually if they already have a love relationship, which is defined by spending a certain amount of time together and getting an arbitrary relationship score up above an arbitrary threshold. And then even at that, everything is sort of coy. You can, you know, kiss each other, which is just a little peck on the cheek. Or if the two characters are in bed together, you can activate an option called Tickle, where the characters sort of look lovingly at each other and then giggle and then disappear under the covers and whatever happens, happens. Mm -hmm. Although it's not doing so in a fanboy service way, the way the God of War games are doing it, Mm -hmm. they're still doing it in a very repressed, very afraid and in some ways, very immature way. The difference here is that the immaturity comes not from the fact that it's being used in a way that is, you know, just lewd and licentious, right. uh, but in the fact that it's just sort of being ignored almost. The, the way it's being suppressed, the way it's being tiptoed around rather than really embraced and explored, it's just sort of 
yeah, I guess people kiss. Okay, now what's the next thing? Right. I guess the Sims is like the newlywed game. You're making whoopee, and <laughs> and uh, heavy rain is is more like real life. Yeah, pretty much. And that's really the thing about heavy rain that's interesting because at uh, if you were to just hear a summary of the plot. A mysterious man called the Origami Killer kidnaps young children and leaves puzzle clues so that their loved ones can find them, but none of their loved ones ever do. Now you play that loved one who is picking up the gauntlet and taking on the challenge. Can you save your child before he drowns? It sounds sort of like a B-grade exploitation movie. Mm. But despite the fact that the plot is over the top and something that would never happen to most people... They manage to approach it in a way that is so realistic and so natural that if you're able to suspend your, your disbelief enough to accept that these events are happening, the way that those events unfold seems like a perfectly logical, rational way for those events, events to unfold. All right, man. Well, hey, thanks for your first crack at bonus level breakout. We hope to have many more of these coming to you, the listener. And definitely, uh, 2PyR, you'll be back with more PS three stuff or some goodies and we look forward to hear from you then absolutely can't wait all right man bye now take it easy thank you everyone once again for joining us for our breakout bonus level minisodes look for another one coming your way next thursday i'm wiggly all the best in gaming bye now Oh, 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 oh,